Letters on England by Voltaire Edited by Henry Morley This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Cheyenne Arrowsmith Letters on England by Voltaire Letter 1 on the Quakers. I was of opinion that the doctrine and history of so extraordinary a people were worthy the attention of the curious. To acquaint myself with them, I made a visit to one of the most eminent Quakers in England, who, after having traded thirty years, had the wisdom to prescribe limits to his fortune and to his desires and was settled in a little solitude not far from London. Being come into it, I perceived a small but regularly built house, vastly neat, but without the least pomp or furniture. The Quaker who owned it was a hale, ruddy-complexioned old man, who had never been afflicted with sickness because he had always been insensible to passions, and a perfect stranger to intemperance. I never in my life saw a more noble or a more engaging aspect than his. He was dressed like those of his persuasion, in a plain coat, without pleats in the sides, or buttons on the pockets and sleeves, and had on a beaver, the brims of which were horizontal like those of our clergy. He did not uncover himself when I appeared, and advanced towards me without once stooping his body. But there appeared more politeness in the open, humane air of his countenance, than in the custom of drawing one leg behind the other, and taking that from the head which is made to cover it. Friend, says he to me, I perceive thou art a stranger, but if I can do anything for thee, only tell me. Sir, said I to him, bending forwards and advancing, as is usual with us, one leg towards him, I flatter myself that my just curiosity will not give you the least offence, and that you will do me the honour to inform me of the particulars of your religion. The people of thy country, replied the Quaker, are too full of their bows and compliments, but I never yet met with one of them who had so much curiosity as thyself. Come in and let us first dine together. I still continued to make some very unseasonable ceremonies, it not being easy to disengage oneself at once from habits we have been long used to, and after taking part in a frugal meal which began and ended with a prayer to God, I began to question my courteous host. I opened with that which good Catholics have more than once made to Huguenots. My dear sir, said I, were you ever baptized? I never was, replied a Quaker, nor any of my brethren. Zounds! said I to him. You are not Christians, then? Friend, replies the old man in a softer tone of voice, 
Swear not. We are Christians and endeavor to be good Christians, but we are not of opinion that the sprinkling water on the child's head makes him a Christian. Heavens! Say I shocked at his impiety. You have then forgot that Christ was baptized by Saint John. Friend, replies the mild Quaker once again, swear not. Christ indeed was baptized by John, but he himself never baptized any one. We are the disciples of Christ, not of John. I pitied very much the sincerity of my worthy Quaker, and was absolutely for forcing him to get himself christened. Were that all, replied he very gravely, we would submit cheerfully to baptism, purely in compliance with thy weakness, for we don't condemn any person who uses it. But then we think that those who profess a religion of so holy, so spiritual a nature as that of Christ ought to abstain to the utmost of their power from the Jewish ceremonies. Oh, unaccountable, said I. What? Baptism a Jewish ceremony? Yes, my friend, said he. So truly Jewish. That a great many Jews use the baptism of John to this day. Look into ancient authors, and thou wilt find that John only revived this practice, and that it had been used by the Hebrews long before his time, in like manner as the Mohammedans imitated the Ishmaelites in their pilgrimages to Mecca. Jesus indeed submitted to the baptism of John, as he had suffered himself to be circumcised. But circumcision and washing with water ought to be abolished by the baptism of Christ. That baptism of the spirit, that ablution of the soul, which is the salvation of mankind. Thus, the foreigner said, "I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance." But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Likewise, Paul, the great apostle of the Gentiles, writes as follows to the Corinthians: Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And indeed, Paul never baptized but two persons with water, and that very much against his inclinations. He circumcised his disciple Timothy, and the other disciples likewise circumcised all who were willing to submit to that carnal ordinance. But art thou circumcised? Added he. I have not the honor to be so," said I. Well, friend," continues the Quaker, "thou art a Christian without being circumcised, and I'm one without being baptized." Thus did this pious man make a wrong but very specious application of four or five texts of Scripture, which seemed to favor the tenets of his sect. But at the same time, forgot very sincerely an hundred texts which made directly against them.
I had more sense than to contact with him, since there is no possibility of convincing an enthusiast. A man should never pretend to inform a lover of his mistress's faults, no more than one who is at law of the badness of his cause, nor attempt to win over a fanatic by strength of reasoning. Accordingly, I waived the subject. Well, said I to him, what sort of a communion have you? We have none like that thou hintest at among us, replied he. How? No communion, said I. Only that spiritual one, replied he, of heart. He then began again to throw out his texts of scripture and preached a most eloquent sermon against that ordinance. He harangued in a tongue as though he had been inspired to prove that the sacraments were merely of human invention and that the word sacrament was not once mentioned in the gospel. Excuse, said he, my ignorance, for I have not employed a hundredth part of the arguments which might be brought to prove the truth of our religion, but these thou thyself mightest peruse in the exposition of our faith written by Robert Barclay. It is one of the best pieces that ever was penned by man, and as our adversaries confess it to be of dangerous tendency, the arguments in it must necessarily be very convincing. I promised to peruse this piece, and my Quaker imagined he had already made a convert of me. He afterwards gave me an account in few words of some singularities which make this sect the contempt of others. Confess, said he, that it was very difficult for thee to refrain from laughter, when answered all thy civilities without uncovering my head, and at the same time said thee and thou to thee. However, thou appearest to me too well read, not to know that in Christ's time no nation was so ridiculous as to put the plural number for the singular. Augustus Caesar himself was spoken to in such phrases as these, I love thee, I beseech thee, I thank thee, but he did not allow any person to call him Domain, sir. It was not till many ages after that man would have the word you, as though they were double, instead of thou employed in speaking to them, and usurped the flattering titles of lordship, of eminence and of holiness, which mere worms bestow on other worms by assuring them that they are with a most profound respect and an infamous falsehood, their most obedient, humble servants. It is to secure ourselves more strongly from such a shameless traffic of lies and flattery that we, thee, and thou a king with the same freedom as we do a beggar, and salute no person. We own in nothing to mankind but charity, and to the law's respect and obedience. Our apparel is also somewhat different from that of others, and this purely that it may be a perpetual warning to us not to imitate them. Others wear 
the badges and the marks of their several dignities, and we those of Christian humility. We fly from all assemblies of pleasure, from diversions of every kind, and from places where gaming is practiced. And indeed, our case would be very deplorable, should we feel with such levities as those I have mentioned the heart which ought to be the habitation of God. We never swear, not even in a court of justice, being of opinion that the most holy name of God. Ought not to be prostituted in the miserable contests betwixt man and a man. When we are obliged to appear before a magistrate upon other people's account, for lawsuits are unknown among the friends, we give evidence to the truth by sealing it with our yea or nay, and the judges believe us. On our bare affirmation, while as to so many other Christians forswear themselves on the holy gospels, we never war or fight in any case. But it is not that we are afraid, for so far from shuddering at thoughts of death, we, on the contrary, bless the moment which unites us with the being of beings. But the reason of our not using the outward sword is that we are neither wolves, tigers, nor mastiffs, but men and Christians. Our God, who has commanded us to love our enemies and to suffer without repining, would certainly not permit us to cross the seas merely because murderers clothed in scarlet and wearing caps two foot high. Enlist the citizens by the noise made with two little sticks on an ass skin extended, and when after a victory is gained, the whole city of London is illuminated. When the sky is in a blaze with fireworks and a noise is heard in the air of thanksgivings, of bells, of organs, and of the cannon, we groan in silence. And are deeply affected with sadness of spirit and brokenness of heart, for the sad havoc which is the occasion of those public rejoicings. Letter two on the Quakers. Such was the substance of the conversation I had with this very singular person, but I was greatly surprised to see him come the Sunday following. And take me with him to the Quakers' meeting. There are several of these in London, but that which he carried me to stands near the famous pillar called the Monument. The brethren were already assembled at my entering it with my guide. There might be about four hundred men and three hundred women in the meeting. The women hid their faces behind their fans, and the men were covered with their broad-brimmed hats. All were seated, and the silence was universal. I passed through them, but did not perceive so much as one lift up his eyes to look at me. This silence lasted a quarter of an hour, when at last one of them rose up, took off his hat, and after making a variety of wry faces and groaning in a most lamentable manner, he, partly from his nose and partly from his mouth. Throughout a strange, confused jumble of words, borrowed as he imagined 
from the gospel, which neither himself nor any of his hearers understood. When this distorter had ended his beautiful soliloquy, and that the stupid but greatly edified congregation were separated, I asked my friend how it was possible for the judicious part of their assembly to suffer such a babbling. We are obliged, says he, to suffer it, because no one knows when a man rises up to hold forth whether he will be moved by the spirit. Or by folly, in this doubt and uncertainty, we listen patiently to every one. We even allow our women to hold forth. Two or three of these are often inspired at one and the same time, and it is then that a most charming noise is heard in the Lord's house. You have then no priests," said I to him. "No, no, friend," replies the Quaker. To our great happiness, then opening one of the friend's books, as he called it, he read the following words in an emphatic tone: "God forbid we should presume to ordain any one to receive the Holy Spirit on the Lord's day to the prejudice of the rest of the brethren." Thanks to the Almighty, we are the only people upon earth that have no priests. Good is that thou deprive us of so happy a distinction. Why should we abandon our babe to mercenary nurses, when we ourselves have milk enough for it? These mercenary creatures would soon domineer in our houses and destroy both the mother and the babe. God has said, "Freely you have received, freely give." Shall we, after these words, cheapen, as it were, the gospel, sell the Holy Ghost, and make of an assembly of Christians a mere shop of traders? We don't pay a set of men clothed in black to assist our poor, to bury our dead, or to preach to the brethren. These officers are all of too tender a nature for us ever to entrust them to others. But how is it possible for you," said I, with some warmth, "to know whether your discourse is really inspired by the Almighty? Whosoever," says he, "shall employ Christ to enlighten him, and shall publish the gospel truth he may feel inwardly, such an one may be assured that he is inspired by the Lord." He then poured forth a numberless multitude of scripture texts, which proved, as he imagined, that there is no such thing as Christianity without an immediate revelation, and added these remarkable words: "When thou movest one of thy limbs, is it moved by thy own power? Certainly not, for this limb is often sensible to involuntary motions." Consequently, he who created thy body gives motion to this earthly tabernacle, and all the several ideas of which thy soul receives the impression formed by thyself, much less are they, since these pouring upon thy mind, whether thou wilt or no. 
Consequently, thou receivest thy ideas from him who created thy soul. But as he leaves thy affections at full liberty, he gives thy mind such ideas as thy affections may deserve. If thou livest in God, thou actest, thou thinkest in God. After this, thou needest only but open thy eyes to that light which enlightens all mankind, and it is then thou wilt perceive the truth and make others perceive it. Why this, said I, is Malbranche's doctrine to a tittle? I am acquainted with thy Malbranche, said he. He had something of the friend in him, but was not enough so. These are the most considerable particulars I learned concerning the doctrine of the Quakers. In my next letter, I shall acquaint you with their history, which you will find more singular than their opinions. Letter 3 On the Quakers You have already heard that the Quakers date from Christ, who according to them was the first Quaker. Religion, say these, was corrupted a little after his death and remained in that state of corruption about 1600 years. But there were always a few Quakers concealed in the world who carefully preserved the sacred fire which was extinguished in all but themselves until at last This light spread itself in England in 1642. It was at the time when Great Britain was torn to pieces by the intestine wars which three or four sects had raised in the name of God, that one George Fox, born in Leicestershire and son to a silk weaver, took it into his head to preach, and as he pretended, with all the requisites of a true apostle, that is, without being able either to read or write. He was about twenty-five years of age, irreproachable in his life and conduct, and a holy madman. He was equipped in leather from head to foot and travelled from one village to another, exclaiming against the war and the clergy. Had his invectives been levelled against the soldiery only, he would have been safe enough, but he inveighed against the ecclesiastics. Fox was seized at Derby, and being carried before a justice of peace, he did not once offer to pull off his leathern hat, upon which an officer gave him a great box of the ear and cried to him, Don't you know you are to appear uncovered before his worship? Fox presented his other cheek to the officer and begged him to give him another box for God's sake. The justice would have had him sworn before he asked him any questions. No, friend, says Fox to him, that I never swear. The justice, observing he theed and thou'd him, sent him to the house of correction in Derby with orders that he should be whipped there. Fox praised the Lord all the way he went to the house of correction, 
where the justice's order was executed with the utmost severity. The men who whipped his enthusiast were greatly surprised to hear him beseech them to give him a few more lashes for the good of his soul. There was no need of entreating these people. The lashes were repeated, for which folks thanked them very cordially and began to preach. At first, the spectators fell laughing, but they afterwards listened to him. And as enthusiasm is an epidemical distemper, many were persuaded, and those who scourged him became his first disciples. Being set at liberty, he ran up and down the country with a dozen proselytes at his heels, still declaiming against the clergy, and was whipped from time to time. Being one day set in the pillory, he harangued the crowd in so strong and moving a manner that fifty of the auditors became his converts, and he won the rest so much in his favor that. His head being freed tumultuously from the hole where it was fastened, the populace went and searched for the Church of England clergyman who had been chiefly instrumental in bringing him to this punishment, and set him on the same pillory where Fox had stood. Fox was bold enough to convert some of Oliver Cromwell's soldiers. Who thereupon quitted the service and refused to take the oaths. Oliver, having as great a contempt for a sect which would not allow its members to fight, as Sixtus Quintus had for another sector, Dovinonsi Kiamava, began to persecute these new converts. The prisons were crowded with them, but persecution seldom has any other effect than to increase the number of proselytes. These came, therefore, from their confinement, more strongly confirmed in the principles they had imbibed, and followed by their jailers, whom they had brought over to their belief. But the circumstances which contributed chiefly to the spreading of this sect. Were as follows. Fox thought himself inspired, and consequently was of opinion that he must speak in a manner different from the rest of mankind. He thereupon began to writhe his body, to screw up his face, to hold in his breath, and to exhale it in a forcible manner, in so much that the priestess of the Pythian god at Delphos. Could not have acted her part to better advantage. Inspiration soon became so habitual to him that he could scarce deliver himself in any other manner. This was the first gift he communicated to his disciples. These apt very sincerely their master's several grimaces and shooking every limb the instant the fit of inspiration came upon them. Whence they were called. Quakers. The vulgar attempted to mimic them. They trembled. They sparked through the nose. They quaked and fancied themselves inspired by the Holy Ghost. The only thing now wanting was a few miracles, and accordingly they wrought some. Fox, this modern patriarch, spoke thus to a justice of peace before a large assembly of people, friend. 
Take care what thou dost. God will soon punish thee for persecuting His saints. This magistrate, being one who besotted himself every day with bad beer and brandy, died of an apoplex two days after the moment he had signed a mitimus for imprisoning some Quakers. The sudden death with which this justice was seized was not ascribed to his intemperance, but was universally looked upon as the effect of the holy man's predictions. So that this accident made more converts to Quakerism than a thousand sermons and as many shaking fits could have done. Oliver, finding them increase daily, was desirous of bringing them over to his party, and for that purpose attempted to bribe them by money. However, they were incorruptible, which made him one day declare that this religion was the only one he had ever met with. That had resisted the charms of gold. The Quakers were several times persecuted under Charles the Second, not upon a religious account, but for refusing to pay the tithes, for theeing and thouing the magistrates, and for refusing to take the oaths enacted by the laws. At last, Robert Barclay, a native of Scotland, presented to the king. In 1675, his apology for the Quakers, a work as well drawn up as the subject could possibly admit, the dedication to Charles II is not filled with mean, flattering encomiums, but abounds with bold touches in favor of truth and with the wisest counsels. Thou hast tasted. Says he to the king at the close of his epistle dedicatory, of prosperity and adversity, thou knowest what it is to be banished thy native country, to be overruled as well as to rule and sit upon the throne, and being oppressed, thou hast reason to know how hateful the oppressor is both to God and a man. If after all these warnings and advertisements, thou dost not turn unto the Lord with all thy heart, but forget Him who remembered thee in thy distress and give up thyself to follow lust and vanity, surely great will be thy condemnation. Against the witch snare, as well as the temptation of those that may or do feed thee and prompt thee to evil, the most excellent and prevalent remedy will be to apply thyself to that light of Christ which shineth in thy conscience, which neither can nor will flatter thee nor suffer thee to be at ease in thy sins. But doth and will deal plainly and faithfully with thee, as those that are followers thereof have plainly done. Thy faithful friend and subject, Robert Barclay. A more surprising circumstance is that this epistle, written by a private man of no figure, was so happy in its effects as to put a stop to the persecution. Letter four, on the Quakers. 
About this time arose the illustrious William Penn, who established the power of the Quakers in America, and would have made them appear venerable in the eyes of the Europeans, were it possible for mankind to respect virtue when revealed in a ridiculous light. He was the only son of Vice Admiral Penn, favorite of the Duke of York, afterwards King James the Second. William Penn, at twenty years of age, happening to meet with a Quaker in Cork, whom he had known at Oxford, this man made a proselyte of him, and William, being a sprightly youth and naturally eloquent, having a winning aspect, he soon gained over some of his intimates. He carried matters so far that he formed, by insensible degrees, a society of young Quakers who met at his house, so that he was at the head of a sect when a little above twenty. Being returned after his leaving Cork to the vice admiral, his father, instead of falling upon his knees to ask his blessing, he went up to him with his hat on and said, "Friend." I am very glad to see thee in good health. The vice admiral imagined his son to be crazy, but soon finding he was turned Quaker, he employed all the methods that prudence could suggest to engage him to behave and act like other people. The youth made no other answer to his father than by exhorting him to turn Quaker. Also, at last, his father confined himself to this single request, namely. That he should wait upon the king and the Duke of York with his hat under his arm, and should not thee and thou them. William answered that he could not do these things for conscience' sake, which exasperated his father to such a degree that he turned him out of doors. Young Penn gave God thanks for permitting him to suffer so early in his cause. After which he went into the city, where he held forth and made a great number of converts. The Church of England clergy found their congregations dwindle away daily, and the pen being young, handsome, and of a graceful stature, the court as well as the city ladies flocked very devoutly to his meeting. The patriarch George Fox, hearing of his great reputation, came to London. Though the journey was very long, purely to see and converse with him, both resolved to go upon missions into foreign countries, and accordingly they embarked for Holland, after having left labourers sufficient to take care of the London vineyard. Their labours were crowned with success in Amsterdam, but a circumstance which reflected the greatest honour on them. And at the same time, put their humility to the greatest trial was the reception they met with from Elizabeth, the Princess Palatine, aunt to George the First of Great Britain, a lady conspicuous for her genius and knowledge, and to whom Descartes had dedicated his philosophical romance. She was then retired to the Hague, where she received these friends. For so the Quakers were at that time called in Holland. This princess had several conferences with them in her palace, and she at last entertained so favourable an opinion of Quakerism that they confessed she was not far from the kingdom of heaven. 
The friends sowed likewise the good seed in Germany, but reaped very little fruit. For the mode of thieing and thouing was not approved of in a country where a man is perpetually obliged to employ the titles of highness and excellency. William Penn returned soon to England upon hearing of his father's sickness, in order to see him before he died. The vice admiral was reconciled to his son, and though of a different persuasion, embraced him tenderly. William made a fruitless exhortation to his father not to receive the sacrament, but to die a Quaker, and the good old man entreated his son William to wear buttons on his sleeves and a crape hatband in his beaver, but all to no purpose. William Penn inherited very large possessions, part of which consisted in crown debts. Due to the vice admiral for sums he had advanced for the sea service, no money were at that time more insecure than those owing from the king. Penn was obliged to go more than once and thee and thou, King Charles and his ministers, in order to recover the debt. And at the last, instead of specie, the government invested him with the right and sovereignty of a province of America. To the south of Maryland, thus was a Quaker raised to sovereign power. Penn set sail for his new dominions with two ships freighted with Quakers who followed his fortune. The country was then called Pennsylvania, from William Penn, who there founded Philadelphia, now the most flourishing city in that country. The first step he took. Was to enter into an alliance with his American neighbors, and this is the only treaty between those people and the Christians that was not ratified by an oath and was never infringed. The new sovereign was at the same time the legislator of Pennsylvania and enacted very wise and prudent laws, none of which have ever been changed since his time. The first is. To injure no person upon a religious account, and to consider as brethren all those who believe in one God. He had no sooner settled his government, but several American merchants came and peopled this colony. The natives of the country, instead of flying into the woods, cultivated by insensible degrees a friendship with the peaceable Quakers. They loved those foreigners as much as they detested the other Christians who had conquered and laid waste America. In a little time, a great number of those savages, falsely so-called, charmed with the mild and gentle disposition of their neighbors, came in crowds to William Penn and besought him to admit them into the number of his vassals. It was very rare and uncommon for a sovereign to be thee'd and thou'd by the meanest of his subjects, who never took their hats off when they came into his presence. And as singular for a government to be without one priest in it, and for a people to be without arms, either offensive or defensive. For a body of citizens to be absolutely undistinguished, but by the public employments. And for neighbors not to entertain the least jealousy one against the other, William Penn might glory in having brought down upon earth the so much boasted golden age, 
which in all probability never existed but in Pennsylvania. He returned to England to settle some affairs relating to his new dominions. After the death of King Charles II, King James, who had loved the father, indulged the same affection to the son, and no longer considered him as an obscure secretary, but as a very great man. The king's politics on this occasion agreed with his inclinations. He was desirous of pleasing the Quakers by annulling the laws made against the Nonconformists. In order to have an opportunity by this universal toleration of establishing the Romish religion, all the sectarists in England saw the snare that was laid for them, but did not give into it. They never failing to unite when the Romish religion, their common enemy, is to be opposed. But Penn did not think himself bound in any manner to renounce his principles merely to favor Protestants to whom he was odious, in opposition to a king who loved him. He had established a universal toleration with regard to conscience in America, and would not have it thought that he intended to destroy it in Europe. For which reason he adhered so inviolably to King James. That a report prevailed universally of his being a Jesuit. This calumny affected him very strongly, and he was obliged to justify himself in print. However, the unfortunate King James the Second, in whom, as in most princes of the Stuart family, grandeur and weakness were equally blended, and who, like them, as much overdid some things as he was short in others. Lost his kingdom in a manner that is hardly to be accounted for. All the English sectarists accepted from William the Third and his Parliament the toleration and indulgence which they had refused when offered by King James. It was then the Quakers began to enjoy, by virtue of the laws, the several privileges they possess at this time. Penn, having at last seen Quakerism firmly established in his native country, went back to Pennsylvania. His own people and the Americans received him with tears of joy, as though he had been a father who was returned to visit his children. All the laws had been religiously observed in his absence, a circumstance in which no legislator had ever been happy but himself. After having resided some years in Pennsylvania, he left it, but with great reluctance, in order to return to England, there to solicit some matters in favor of the commerce of Pennsylvania. But he never saw it again. He dying in Ruscombe in Berkshire, in 1718. I am not able to guess what fate Quakerism may have in America. But I perceive it dwindles away daily in England. In all countries where liberty of conscience is allowed, the established religion will at last swallow up all the rest. Quakers are disqualified from being members of Parliament, nor can they enjoy any post or preferment, because an oath must always be taken on these occasions, and they never swear. They are therefore reduced to the necessity of subsisting upon traffic.
Their children, whom the industry of their parents has enriched, are desirous of enjoying honors, of wearing buttons and ruffles, and quite ashamed of being called Quakers, they became converts to the Church of England, merely to be in the fashion.